you would turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at the fifth beatitude, verse number 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Last week we looked at the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I suggested that a failure to hunger and thirst for righteousness is at least the result of three things, and I'll just mention two by way of review. First of all, we do not hunger because we are full. We're filled with other things. We don't hunger for what God wants, but rather we have a desire, we satisfy it, and therefore we do not hunger or thirst after righteousness. And we do not hunger because we feel content. Perhaps there are fewer problems in our lives. We have what we need and even more. We are at peace. I also suggested that there are two possible remedies. I'll only mention one by way of review. And that is we are to avoid those things that would spoil our appetite. We tell children, don't eat certain things before a meal because if they do, it will ruin the meal. It will spoil their appetite. But we as God's people need to ask ourselves, if we do not hunger and thirst after righteousness, what has spoiled our appetite? Now, if you take the reasons for not having a thirst or a hunger for God's things and the possible solution, the conclusion might well be, and some have come to this conclusion, that we are to live rather joyless lives, that we cannot have a taste for anything else, and that we should just all go and live in an isolated monastery in the desert somewhere. And this is to miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the roof under which we are to live. All other hungers that are lawful are to be under that roof. It is not to say that there's one hunger and one only and you can't hunger or desire anything else. All other hungers are to be subservient to that. But they're still to be a part of our lives. Um, the teacher in Ecclesiastes concludes at several points, so I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. That is, if you wish to satisfy his hunger and his thirst. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. And then later, then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. What Jesus is calling us to in this beatitude is to hunger and thirst after living lives that are marked by obedience. We are human beings. We have desires. We have hungers. God made us this way. These are not wrong. It's part of what it means to be human. Now, some of these hungers may, in fact, not be right, but many of them, in fact, are legitimate. However, even legitimate hungers cannot provide the ultimate meaning to life. This does not mean that we are to ignore them. It means that, first of all, we are to hunger and thirst after doing what is right. Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God has given us hungers and desires. He has given us a thirst. 
these oftentimes will try to fight to be the supreme hunger or thirst in our lives. And they will try to push aside the hunger for righteousness. This fight, I think, is an ongoing battle. Because it'd be easier if we said, I'm to hunger and thirst after righteousness, period. I'm not to desire anything else. End of story, that's the way it is. But that's not the way it is. God gave us taste buds. You know, he gave us stomachs that need to be filled. This comes from God. But these gifts that God has given us oftentimes want to replace the one who gave it to us, the giver, and this is where we get into trouble. So some have suggested what you need to do is to deny your hunger and thirst, to deprive yourself of any joy or satisfaction. And in fact, this is what many people think that it means to be a Christian. Uh, to go out and live in the desert somewhere by yourself to live a life of total deprivation. But this is not the answer because these gifts, these hungers and desires come from God. And hunger to do what is right involves how we deal with other people. Just a side note. Um, there's nothing wrong with hungering. And I... I love Mexican food, and there are different places we go to. I like Chinese food. Um, these, in and of themselves, are not wrong, and we should not say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so I can't really uh, enjoy certain foods, or I can't enjoy certain activities. Um, this is not what Jesus is saying at all. Okay. We've actually come to a certain point here in the Beatitudes in which there is a division. Like what we find in the Ten Commandments, the first four Beatitudes deal with our relationship to God. And then the second section deals with our relationship with other people. Consider what we've seen in our relationship to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are to acknowledge to ourselves, but also to God, that we are dependent upon Him. We are bankrupt apart from Him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, we mourn over the cause of our poverty, that sin has screwed things up royally and has in many ways alienated us from God. And particularly when we commit sins in the face of God's great grace to us. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Here we allow our spiritual poverty, which we acknowledge and we mourn over, to affect our behavior and our relationship with God and our fellow human beings. And then last week, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here we look to God for the strength to be obedient to his commands. The second section, which we begin today, looks at our relationship with our fellow human beings. As I said, we see this twofold division in the Ten Commandments as well. The first part deals with our relationship with God. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to rest and keep it holy. It's the first part of the law. And then the last six commandments deal with our relationship with other human beings. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet what is your neighbor's. And therefore, when we come to the New Testament, we hear that the the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the first four commandments. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. 
These are the last six commandments. Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is it. This is the foundation, our relationship to God and our relationship to our fellow human beings. Francis Schaeffer many years ago said that we are to love God enough to be content and we are to love our neighbor enough not to covet. We are to be content in our relationship with God and with our relationship with others we are not to covet. The way we treat human beings is as important as our relationship with God. We are to hunger and thirst to do what is right. And now beginning in the fifth, command, uh, fifth beatitude, Jesus tells us what that means. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We are called to be full of mercy or merciful. Mercy is a subject found throughout Matthew's gospel. I'll just mention several instances. Twice um, we have Jesus quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. Um, the first is found, interestingly enough, in the calling of Matthew. Matthew used to be a tax collector. He was, in the eyes of people, a reprobate. He worked for the Romans. And yet Jesus called him to be a disciple. This is in Matthew 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While, Ma while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And here he quotes from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the second time Jesus quotes Hosea 6 is when he is challenged about the Sabbath. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In pronouncing woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the experts in religious matters, Jesus says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then in Matthew 9, after the calling of Matthew to be a disciple, there are two blind men who followed him calling out, have mercy on us, son of David, and Jesus healed them. And we hear this again in Matthew chapter 20 as Jesus is leaving Jericho for Jerusalem. Mercy is very important to Matthew, and it is in his gospel. By the way, just I must mention one other instance, which is found in Luke, um, the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked this lawyer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, that's all well and good, but what exactly is mercy? Simply put, it is compassion for people in need. It might be helpful, particularly for those, I think, who are more familiar with things in Scripture, that oftentimes we might confuse mercy and grace. Um, let's look at the differences between them. Mercy deals with the results of sin. 
we see pain and misery and distress. These are the results of sin. Grace deals with sin itself and its guilt. Mercy extends relief. Grace gives pardon. Mercy helps and cures and heals, but grace cleanses and reinstates. Martin Luther described the merciful, those who are full of mercy, as those who come to the aid of the needy. This runs contrary, by the way, to our human nature, our fallen nature, which you see in the world, if it's true to its own nature, is unmerciful. The world, and are we any different, prefers to insulate itself against the pains and calamities that other people face. We find revenge to be sweet and delicious, or we imagine that it is. And forgiveness, on the other hand, is kind of tame and, let's face it, lame. Why would you forgive someone when, in fact, you could get revenge? Jesus calls us, in contrast to our human nature, to be full of mercy. And the promised blessing is they will be shown mercy. It's the only beatitude in which we find the promise, blessed, they will be given mercy, is the same as the quality that is called for. So we are called to be merciful, and if we are merciful, we will be shown mercy. In Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, there's a wonderful uh, section there, uh, a speech by Portia. I think I had to memorize this when I was in seventh or eighth grade. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. Hear this, it is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. That is, mercy is twofold. In giving, we are also receiving. Such is the nature of mercy. The one who receives is the one who is to give. Now, Jesus is not saying you need to be merciful so that God in turn will be merciful to you. No, the first four Beatitudes deal with our relationship to God. If we have been reconciled to God, God has shown us mercy, we are then to show mercy. Nothing shows or proves or demonstrates more clearly that we have been shown mercy than if, in fact, we are ready to show mercy to other people. Mercy begets mercy. And if we do not show mercy, then one can question whether or not we have been shown mercy. We hear it in the Lord's Prayer later in the Sermon on the Mount, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. But how does this work out? I mean, this, this sounds wonderful, but how does it work out in practical terms? How are we to show mercy? How are we to be merciful to others? Let me suggest the following. First of all, we are to pity them. That is, we are to even mourn for them. Augustine wrote centuries ago, if I weep for that body from which the soul is departed, that is, someone has died, their soul has left, how should I not weep for that soul from which God has departed? If someone is in prison, is in chains to sin, then we should in fact mourn for them, we should have pity on them. We should mourn over their state. Secondly, in advising them, we show mercy, telling them what a sad state they are in and pointing out the danger they face, the wrath of God. One pastor wrote, again, centuries ago, if we will help an animal that has fallen under a burden, 
should we not extend relief to those who have fallen under a worse burden of sin? The third way that we can be merciful, and this might be counterintuitive, is in rebuking them sharply. There are times in which we may speak to people kindly, and there I think people say, well, yeah, you're, you're being merciful there because you speak to them kindly, um, and God may melt their hearts as a result. But other times, if we do not rebuke them, if we do not rebuke them, we are not being merciful, we are in fact being cruel. remember years ago, uh, my nephew, who was, I think, two or three years old at the time, um, had gotten into the habit of putting marbles in his mouth. And his mother was very sharp with him in a way that I hadn't ever seen before, because she wanted to spare him a dangerous situation. Someone told me later, yes, there's a difference between your child not eating his peas and running out into the street. You know, if they don't eat their peas, and obviously you, you want them to eat their vegetables, but if they run out in the street, that's a matter of life and death. And if we are to be merciful, then we, we in fact may have to speak rather sharply to them. We see this in Paul's two letters to pastors, or in two of his letters. The first is to Timothy, in which he said, those who oppose him, the Lord's servant, he must gently instruct. In other words, if you're the pastor and you're speaking and people disagree, then you need to be gentle. But then to Titus, he said, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Sometimes you just need to put salve and sometimes you need surgery. And in both cases, you are being merciful. But if surgery is required and you put salve, then you're not being merciful. You're in fact being quite cruel. And we are to pray for them. When we are merciful, we pray for those who are in need. How can we claim to be full of mercy when we do not call out to God for them? If God has shown mercy to him, how can we not ask him to show mercy to other people? This, to me, I think is the beginning of being merciful. When we pray for people. And I think it is the place oftentimes where we fail the most. Up to this point, the suggestions I've given only deal with, if you wish, a person's spiritual condition. What about those who have physical needs? And James warns us about this in his epistle. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Showing mercy is not only praying for some, and if necessary, rebuking them, and pitying them, and advising them, but there are times in which it requires material things from us. When we deal with those who are in need, our mercy must be generous, and it must be free. We are to give what we have, we are to do it in the name of Christ and for the sake of Christ, and we are to do it with humility. We are not to say, look at me, how generous I'm being and helping you in your need. We are to be merciful. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, Jesus assumes that you're going to give to those who are in need. Do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. But when you give to the needy, again, Jesus assumes you're going to do this. 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, the cost involved oftentimes we're you know, doing the calculator, you know, do I have, an, if someone is in need, then you in fact are to help them. When we consider how much God has given to us, the God of all creation, should we not in fact be humbled and give to those who are in need? And we are to give thankfully. Paul would tell the Ephesian elders, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And should not we who have been given all things gladly and thankfully give to those who are in need? This is being merciful. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. When I spoke on this passage 24 years ago, I keep records, um, it was the Sunday before the LA riots, the Rodney King riots. When we met the following Sunday, so much had happened. And this is a part of what I have from my notes for that Sunday. What has been our response to what has happened, our attitudes and our hearts? Have we been merciful? Mercy deals with the results of sin. It extends relief, it heals, it helps, it seeks to cure. We saw that one way we can show mercy for people is to pray for them. Have we prayed for those involved? Or have we been merciless? Have we been without mercy in our assessment of them? Again, this is from 24 years ago, but the events of the past week so similar. There can be no doubt that many of the actions of the past week have been lawless, that there can be no excuse for such actions. So where does mercy fit in? Do we simply allow people to do as they wish, to act in a lawless manner? Is this mercy? I think it's important for us to make a distinction between the injuries against us as individuals and against society. I think this really messes people up that God has in fact appointed people to be in positions of authority, to maintain order in society and to punish those who break the law. On the other hand, we as individuals are not to seek revenge. We are not to try to find or get revenge for what people have done to us. We are to be merciful. Mercy begins as a hard attitude so that while those who are in positions of authority seek to maintain law and order by punishing those who break the law, mercy as a hard attitude can still be present. And especially in praying for those who break the law. That was 24 years ago. This past week, once again, we've been faced with situations of lawlessness. And what has been our response? What has been our attitude? I must confess that I have struggled, that I find my response to be less Christian and more political than anything. The reality is, no matter which side of the debate you take, you are to be merciful. Whether you see the police to be at fault, you are to pray for them. If you see those who are writing to be at fault, you are to pray for them as well. We are to be merciful. And when we are not, it is, I think, because we have forgotten what God has done for us. 
In Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, Nathan confronts David over his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there, are two, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He had no mercy. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. He had not shown mercy. Let me close by reading to you the parable of the unmerciful servant. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. By the way, 10,000 talents is in modern currency billions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, that is, he had mercy, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, like a year's wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? We are poor in spirit. We are to mourn over our sins. We are to be meek. We are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is what God has given us. He has been merciful to us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's pray together. Father, it seems to be in our nature to want to sit in judgment on others. One could argue it's one way we survive in this world. We meet so many people, we have to make snap judgments. And oftentimes our judgments have no hint of mercy in them whatsoever. You who have been merciful to us beyond measure have been gracious to us. 
you call us to show that mercy to those around us. And even as in this past week we have seen great upheaval, disturbing upheaval, political assassination, riots, seeming murders. And we sit and make judgments, come to certain determinations about who is right and who is wrong. And in the process have failed to be merciful, have failed to pray for those involved. We have not been merciful. Forgive us, we pray. May we be reminded moment by moment of all you have done for us, how merciful you have been to us. We often say there, but for the grace of God go I. If not for your mercy, who can imagine where we would be? Should we not then be merciful to others? Help us to remember that it is not simply our relationship with you that is important, but our relationship with others as well. How we treat other people is a reflection of what we think of you and our relationship with you. We do pray for our country, for those who represent authority, that you would give them wisdom, keep them from harm, but we also ask that you would keep them from doing harm. And for those who resist their authority, who believe that they have legitimate complaints, watch over them and give them wisdom. May they be merciful in their dealings with others. And may we trust you that all things are in your hands. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. Pray for those that are traveling that you would watch over them, bring them back to us safely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.